you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Ezekiel chapter 47. We will come to this later in the sermon, so if you want to set your Bible aside, but this is what we'll look at today. One commentator started his commentary this way. For most Bible readers, Ezekiel is almost a closed book. I would add, it is also an ignored book, um, except for several passages which are usually misunderstood and misinterpreted because people have ignored the rest of the book. The Old Testament is important beyond the fact that it is scripture. You know, when Paul says that all scripture is inspired, he's talking about the Old Testament at that point. But because it provides background for the New Testament, in particular, the person of the Messiah. I would argue the New Testament does not make sense without the Old Testament. And the Old Testament, through stories, basically defines ideas we find in the New Testament. And it provides symbols which are fleshed out in the New Testament. It is quite important. Having said that, oftentimes there are passages in the Old Testament that are difficult to understand. And such has been the case in our study in the book of Ezekiel. But I am convinced that it has had a lot to teach us, and I hope that we have learned from it. Just to review, who was Ezekiel? We're told that he's a priest. He is the son of Buzi. He was in exile in Babylon. He was 25 years old when he was taken into exile. And he was 30 years old when he was called or commissioned by God to be a prophet. Beyond that, we know very little about this man. We, there is one personal note that we find almost in passing in chapter 24 that he's married. And that the woman we would call his wife is referred to as the delight of your eyes. And she dies that day. His prophetic ministry took place in exile um, in Babylon near the Euphrates River. Uh, apparently, he had freedom to move around. Usually, uh, if we're not careful, we think of exiles that they're like in a concentration camp. And that wasn't the case at all. They have freedom of movement within you know, the confines, the boundaries of the place where they were. What was his message? If we were to sum up the book of Ezekiel, we could put it into two phrases. First of all, God will destroy. And secondly, God will restore and rebuild. These truths are presented in a variety of ways, some of which are actually quite outside our comfort zone. We want, I don't know that we expect, but we want a more direct, a more rational approach. We find ourselves somewhat uncomfortable with poetry, poetic language, symbolism. Just tell us what you mean. why, Why all the flowery language? And instead, in the book of Ezekiel, more than any of the other prophets, we find strange stuff, for lack of a better way to put it. Acted out signs, for example, he was supposed to lay on his left side for 390 days and then on his right side for 40 days. He's given a bad recipe for bread of various ingredients. He's told to shave with a sword, shave his head and his beard, and then to divide it into three different parts. Um, He's told to pack up as though he's going into exile. He's in exile. 
Then there are parables. And I think parables we might be a little more comfortable with in the person of Jesus because an explanation is given. That isn't always the case with Ezekiel. And then there's an allegory in chapter 16, which, as I said, is one commentator is called a strangely fractured mode of discourse. It's like a dream. It's not necessarily sequential. It jumps around from this point to the other. We'd also add that this allegory is not only provocative, it uses crude language. One might say it is unnecessarily crude in the language that is used. And then there are visions. In fact, where we are right now in our study of Ezekiel is in the middle of a vision. In chapter 37, we have the Valley of Dry Bones. It's probably the best known passage or the only known passage in Ezekiel to most people, and yet they misunderstand what's being said. There are sermons, there are laments, laments which is a Hebrew form of poetry. Um, Yeah, these are just difficult and we're somewhat uncomfortable. Um, We want something more direct. We don't want poetry, we want prose. We want him to spell out what it is he's going to say. Part of this is because we have different expectations of a prophet. We see a prophet as a predictor, someone who's going to tell us what's going to happen in the future. But if you read the prophetic books, they're always going back to the law. They're preaching from the first five books of the Bible and calling people to repentance. That's not what we think of as someone who is a prophet. We think of someone who's pointing to the future. So when I say that the double focus of this book is that God will destroy and God will restore, we think, or we might think, that Ezekiel is going to tell his readers, his original listeners, the when and what of what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. This is when it's going to happen. When in fact the message points in a very different direction and that is of promise. We need to look carefully, read him carefully, listen carefully to what Ezekiel is saying and understand that it is the nature of God and his dealing with humanity that is being explained or that is being illustrated. I'm just not sure that we're comfortable with that. Today we come to the end of our study in the book of Ezekiel. And we've seen certain principles that have been fleshed out in this book. The first is the holiness of God. Um, The God of Israel did not possess the quality of being holy. He was holiness itself. He is the Holy One of Israel. That's why we sang our first hymn today. We sang it recently when Dave spoke. Holy, holy, holy. This is the essence of God. And this holiness involves or is presented in a way that may seem quite strange to us. If you go back to chapter 1, Ezekiel is given a vision of this holy God that is unutterably splendid. It is mysteriously intricate, superhuman, supernatural, infinitely mobile, never earthbound, all-seeing, all-knowing. This is how God reveals himself to Ezekiel. Not by proposition. Here are the facts. I think we'd be more comfortable with that. Here are the facts. This is who I am. But instead it is a revelation, a visual revelation, as it begins, in a personal encounter. We find this with Moses, with the burning bush. 
again, I think that we, we would prefer information. But in fact, God wants to meet us. It is, in fact, a personal counter that is involved. The visual is stunning in chapter 1. There are the four living creatures, or as one commentator put it, the four grotesque living creatures. Um, they, have, they appear to have human bodies. They have four faces and four wings. Uh, they have four hands. The four faces represent different aspects of creation. One would say the highest forms of life. Man bears the image of God. The lion is king of wild animals. The ox is among domesticated animals and the eagle among the birds of the air. When we got to chapter 10, we found out that what Ezekiel saw in chapter one, he didn't realize what it was. He was seeing cherubim. Cherubim, by the way, is the plural of cherub. Okay. Why four different kinds of faces? Well, I think they represent different aspects of the qualities of God, his majesty, his strength, his wisdom, his loftiness. But as John Calvin put it, by these heads, all living creatures are, were represented to us. And the point is intended that God is God over all creation. In Isaiah 6, when uh, Isaiah had a vision of the Lord in the temple, uh, the seraphim are crying to each other, holy, 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 is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. Sometimes we have a very narrow view of a holy God and we think that because he is holy, he is other, that he's not really involved that much with what's going on in the world. But in fact, he is. These four characters, these four cherubs, are in fact holding up a platform. And on this platform, is described as, well, let me put this, above the expanse over their heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire, and high on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw, from, I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there down, he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him. As I mentioned, when we started Ezekiel, I found it fascinating that he gives us all these details about these grotesque living creatures. But then when it comes to the one we really want to know about, that is God himself, he's rather vague. Well, and why is that? The next verse says, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God when I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. When in the presence of a holy God, this is the natural reaction. He is confronted in a personal encounter with the glory of God and he falls face down. And this, by the way, is a strong indicator that Ezekiel was a true prophet. The false prophet can chatter you know, on and on about God because he has in fact never met God. He's never had a personal encounter with him. Ezekiel has. And now he is prepared to hear the message from God and share it with his fellow exiles. Just one more thing. I, I suspect that oftentimes we talk about God being holy as though we know what that means. And I think it's beyond our full comprehension. God is in fact mysterious. 
The second thing that we saw in Ezekiel is the sinfulness of Israel. You may remember that there were at least three different camps of people among the, uh, among the exiles. The first said that, yes, we're being punished for our sin. And in fact, um, this is the second wave of exile. We get exactly what we deserve. The second school thought that, in fact, yeah, it's not our fault. It's our, father, it's our ancestors' fault. We're suffering for what they did. And then there was a third camp that said, no, actually, what this proves is that God is not as powerful as everyone's been telling us. He's just a tribal God, and he's not as powerful as the gods of Babylon, and that's why we're in exile. Well, Ezekiel's primary aim is to convince Israel, the exiles, of their sin, that in fact they were sinful and deserving of God's judgment. He gives us a rather graphic picture of the sinfulness of God's people, including the fact that they set up idol worship on the temple grounds. The third thing we saw in Ezekiel is the fact of judgment. It's not new to Ezekiel. It's not new in the Old Testament. We've been hearing messages of judgment, of coming judgment from the various prophets. But there's a difference between the threat of judgment and judgment itself. And so when we up to chapter 33, um, we keep hearing these warnings, judgment's coming, judgment's coming, judgment's coming. But then finally in chapter 33, we find out it's come. Jerusalem has fallen and the temple as well. A recurring phrase we find in Ezekiel is, I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. It's not just a threat. It, in fact, will happen. And it did happen to the people in Jerusalem. Two more things before we move on. The fourth thing here, it really surprised me as I began to study Ezekiel, and that is the fact of individual responsibility. Um, we may think of individuality as a very modern thing that people used to think in a more corporate, communal sense, so that the sin of one is the sin of the community. We think of Achan. He stole from Jericho, and therefore Israel was defeated in battle. Um, but when we get to Ezekiel, we find out, in fact, the individual bears responsibility. Uh, the soul that sins, it will die. And we have the vision where Ezekiel sees people going through the city, these angels, these messengers, and they put a mark on the forehead of those who stand for what is right. And then another angel comes behind them, and whoever doesn't have a mark, he kills them. Interestingly enough, in our time, we seem to be swinging away from individual responsibility and we put it on institutions. So we keep hearing about a structural or systemic uh, institutional, uh, people wouldn't use the word sin, but you know, whatever you use, you know, the patriarchy, uh, racism, whatever, it's, it's not like the individual is responsible, it's the system that we were born into. Um, but Ezekiel goes through great pains to say that God treats every person as an individual. It's not your genetic code, it's not your hereditary, it's not your forefathers, it's not your environment. I can't help it, I grew up in Jerusalem and all these, all these you know, idolaters around me, what could I do? It's personal choice.
something that we should take to heart. The fifth thing, though, is the promise of restoration, of transformation. And this really is interesting because it stands in contrast to individual responsibility. The reality of restoration or transformation is communal. So individually we have sinned. We will, we will bear the consequences of our sin. But in redemption, in restoration and transformation, it happens as a community. We saw this most clearly in chapter 37, the vision of the valley of dry bones. Uh, then he, that is the Lord, said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. And then Ezekiel is told to preach to the bones, and they reanimate. He preaches to the wind, they come, and then you have a living, breathing community. As we've come to the last part of Ezekiel, you may have noticed the numbers, a lot of measuring going on, and the mention of the tribes of Israel, which is interesting because ten of the tribes are gone. It's only Judah and Benjamin that's left. The information may seem overwhelming and, frankly, unnecessary. But they are important, they are necessary, because they point to the reality of restoration and transformation. In our text today, in chapter 47, we come to the last part of Ezekiel's tour of the temple. You may, may remember that it begins with him being taken back to Jerusalem in a vision, and there is a new temple. And there's someone with him with a measuring rod, and they go around and measure everything. This is the last part of the tour. Um, I hope it will become obvious from what we read here in chapter 47 that the new temple in this vision is not a task for Israel to complete. You know, tell the exiles when you go back, this is what you've got to build. No. It is not a blueprint for rebuilding the temple. It's not something that will be built in the future. It is, in fact, symbolic of something greater than itself. Follow along, if you would, as I read here in chapter 47, beginning at verse number 1. The man, that is the tour guide, if you wish, brought me back to the entrance of the temple. And I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east, and the water was flowing from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, Son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and down into the Arabah, where it enters the sea. When it empties into the sea, the water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because the water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. 
So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along, along, the, river, along the shore from Engedi to Eglaim. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will neither wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food, and their leaves for healing. Okay, consider what's being said here. First of all, the river begins as water that is coming out from under the threshold of the temple. Certainly an unlikely source for a stream that will turn into a river to begin. It's also something that the builders could not do. And so this is not a blueprint like, okay, Israel, when you build a temple, make sure that you have a stream that can then turn into this huge river. It comes from under the threshold. I assume you know what the threshold is. It, is, it can be wood, metal or wood or stone. It is, in fact, the bottom part of a doorway that when you, cross the, when you cross the threshold, you leave one room and go into another. And so figuratively, when people talk about the threshold of something, they're talking about leaving something behind and going into something new. And so you have the temple and now you cross the threshold and now you have the water that is coming out. The water is shallow at the beginning and it gets deeper. It's ankle deep at the 500 yard mark and then knee deep after another 500 yards and then waist deep after another 500 yards. And then after that, uh, Ezekiel can't cross it because the river is so deep. uh, He can swim, but he cannot cross it. This river is not simply a river, it is a life-giving source of water. So Ezekiel is asked by his tour guide, do you see this? And then he points out great number of trees on each side of the river. They are fruit trees, and they are not normal fruit trees because we know that there are certain fruits that are in season at certain times of the year. These are always in season. We would say scientifically that's not possible because you have to have, you know, first you have the blossom that is pollinated and it takes time for the fruit to grow. These always have fruit. We are told every month they will bear because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. So this river, this water that comes from the temple is not ordinary water. It is certainly something that is life-giving. It is a source of healing. So these trees that have fruits, their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. Keep that in mind. We will come back to it in a bit. And then the river actually will transform the Dead Sea into, I guess you would call, the living sea. The Dead Sea has you know, all of these deposits that have come into it. Um, nothing can live there. Nothing can grow there. And in fact... It will be teeming with life. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. Large numbers of fish. Fishermen will stand on the shore. You see, this river that comes from the temple is life-giving. It is 
fruitful, it produces fruitfulness and healing. But not in a mindless way. We shouldn't imagine that this is sort of a mini tsunami that comes out of the temple. Because of verse number 11, which really puzzled me at first, because it, you know, it says, um, but the swamps and marshes will not become fresh, they will be left for salt. And I'm like, what did the swamps and marsh ever do that they don't get the fresh water? It seems unfair that the Dead Sea gets it, everybody else gets it, but not the swamps and the marsh. Well, in chapter 43, verse 24, which is part of the, his tour of the temple and what the priests are going to be doing, you are to offer them before the Lord, and the priests are to sprinkle salt on them and sacrifice them as a burnt offering to the Lord. Salt is a key component in temple worship. Uh, it is an ingredient that is in the recipe for incense that is to be burned in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. Very specific recipe and salt is part of it. It is part, it's a component of the grain offering. And then in Numbers 18, something is mentioned that's mentioned one other time. There is the covenant of salt. Um, in, in Numbers 18, it's like, okay, whatever people give as offering, part of it goes to the priests and the Levites. Whatever is set aside from the holy offerings the Israelites present to the Lord, I give to you, that is to the priests and the Levites, and your sons and daughters as your regular share. That's what they're going to eat, a part of the sacrifice that is given by the Israelites. It is an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord for both you and your offspring. Okay, back to Ezekiel 43. They're to make sure that there's salt. Where are they going to get the salt? The swamps and the marshes. That's why the living water that comes out of the temple does not make the swamps and marshes fresh. Okay? They will be left for salt, Ezekiel is told. So we have this river, this water that comes out of the temple. Its origin is in the temple. It is a source of life, fruitfulness, and healing. Is this something new in the Bible? Not at all. Not at all. In both Genesis and Revelation, the first book of the Bible and the last book of the Bible, we read of similar things. In fact, it's Genesis chapter 2, and then it's Revelation 21, the second chapter, the next to the last chapter in the Bible. In Genesis 2, we read, Now the Lord had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the, tree was the, in the, middle of the garden was a tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters, Tigris, Euphrates, and two others. So the river actually starts in Eden, just like it does in Ezekiel 47. It starts in the temple. What we have in Genesis 2 is creation. What we have in Revelation 21 is redemption. The, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing 
of the nations. John has a very similar vision to what Ezekiel did, but there's more clarity to it. This river is, in fact, the water of life. It comes from the throne of God and of the Lamb, that is, the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And unlike what we saw in Ezekiel and what we read in Genesis, this river is actually in the city. It goes down the street, the main street of the vision that John has, this, this river, the water of life. And what God provides for his people is life, refreshment, and nourishment. On either side, and this has puzzled commentators, I mean, either a tree is on one side or the other, but on both sides is the tree of life. Um, tree of life. Didn't we just read about that in Genesis 2? where God planted the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden for their disobedience, um, God says, the man must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So he drove them out and he has cherubim who are guarding the way to the tree of life. We cannot have life on our own terms apart from God. But now in the new heaven and the new earth, redemption, we have access to the tree of life. The blessing that Adam and Eve forfeited by their disobedience has now been restored to us because of the obedience of the Lord Jesus. That's why I said last week, I've been talking about restoration being restored and that's not quite the whole story. I think that transformation uh, sort of rounds it out more. Um, if we think only in terms of restoration, in the words, as I mentioned last week, Joni Mitchell, we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. No, no, no. God has something else. There is a continuity. It begins in Genesis. We hear it now in Ezekiel, and it will be completed in the book of Revelation. When we speak of transformation, Eden is not simply restored, it is perfected, it is consummated, it's made complete, and it's transformed. And so Eden, if you wish from Genesis 2, is now a city. It's a city in Revelation 21. In Revelation, we are told that the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nation. Ezekiel doesn't tell us that, but he tells us that their leaves are for healing. And he doesn't talk about the tree of life. Instead, he talks about fruit trees of all kinds. But like the tree of life in Revelation 21, their leaves are for healing. Okay, so what is this all, where is this all going? What is this all about? Well, if you would, look at chapter 48. And look at the very, very last line of the book of Ezekiel. The Lord is there. 
whole verse reads, and the name of the city from that time on will be, the Lord is there. If you look, just glance briefly, you'll see in fact that the 12 tribes are mentioned and who gets what and all the designations of, you know, and then you have a bunch of numbers and the measurements and all that. Um, But they're all situated with regard to the temple. Okay? And this is the point to which the whole book of Ezekiel has been headed. Beginning in chapter 1, when he sees these grotesque creatures that are holding a platform on which we have the glory of God, and then we hear about judgment, all these various things, it's all been headed to this point. Ezekiel was given a vision of a transcendent God who commissions him to be a prophet. He's taken on a journey. The book of Ezekiel is, in fact, a journey where he is told about the sinfulness of Israel, the coming judgment. He's given insight into Israel's history, which really challenges their view of their own uniqueness. We're special. We're the chosen ones. They were, in fact, chosen by God, but I think they really misunderstood their uniqueness. It's here in Ezekiel that we find out that when Israel was in Egypt, they were idol worshipers. They weren't worshiping the true God. And so God's like, okay, should I destroy them or should I redeem them? Well, he'd made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so he redeems them. The tabernacle was to be built, and then the temple later, which were intended to be an indication of the presence of God. God is in your midst. God is with you. That's why when we get to chapter 33 and the temple is destroyed, how is that even possible? The temple represents the presence of God. This must mean that God is gone. And Ezekiel's like, go back to chapter 10. The glory of God left long time ago. God had left his people long time ago. That's why this judgment had come. And there's more. We studied a number of chapters in which uh, the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we find out is also the Lord of all creation and of all nations. So there are prophecies against the surrounding nations. There's Ammon, Moab, Edom, Philistia, Tyre, Sidon, Egypt. He is the God of Israel, but he is the God of all creation. Jerusalem falls, the temple is destroyed, End of story? Not at all. Ezekiel is given a series of visions which point toward restoration and transformation. The valley of the vision of dry bones, the vision of the two sticks where Israel and Judah will be reunited. But it isn't simply restoration. It is transformation. This temple, and we've not spent that much time looking at the dimensions. It's huge. I mean, compared to the original temple, it's a monster. It's huge. It's monstrously large. Um, It is supposed to represent, it symbolizes something. It symbolizes the presence of God. All of this points to the Lord Jesus. I mentioned several weeks ago the incident. It's recorded in John chapter 2. When it was time, or almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. When you went to the temple to give your offering, it had to be in the temple shekel. And if you come, let's say, 
from Rome or from Asia Minor, you don't have that currency. They are the money changers. So you, you, can, go to, you can go to temple with the right currency for your worship. So he made a whip out of cords and drove, out, uh, drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? Then the disciples demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Who made you the boss of everything? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? By the way, a side note, the temple wasn't finished yet. They'd been working on it for 46 years. Okay. It wasn't finished yet. And Jesus said he would raise it in three days. John then tells us, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. We have the story of Joseph's dream, trying to decide what to do. His fiance, his betrothed, is pregnant. Angel tells him Mary will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. You mean like at the end of Ezekiel, the Lord is here? That's what it's all about. All of the Old Testament is pointing to the coming of the Lord Jesus. He is the new temple. We are his people. Jesus has come into the world. Have you ever wondered why people spend so much energy trying to disprove the existence of Jesus as a human being? Well, if you do that, then in fact you wipe out the whole Old Testament. Jesus has come into the world. He's left the world, but he sent his spirit to communicate to us his person. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, there I am in their midst. That is by the work of the spirit. John, in his vision in in Revelation 21, says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So everything we've seen in Ezekiel, yes, there is judgment coming, there is restoration, but the restoration is not, oh, we're going to be a great people again. It is the coming of the Messiah himself. For all the difficulties that we have encountered in studying the book of Ezekiel, it all comes down to this. The Lord is there. He wants to be among his people, his people who have rejected him, who have worshipped false gods. He will, in fact, restore them. And in a way that, frankly, is beyond my comprehension, there is individual responsibility, but the restoration, the redemption, will be, in fact, communal that God will have a people that are his own. We live in a time, and it's, it's been this way for a couple hundred years, where salvation is seen as very individual. Um, and there is an aspect to that. I, I'm not discounting that. But as I mentioned before, you know, people say, uh, have you accepted Jesus as your own personal savior? 
And so there is a sense that that's all I need to do. I need to accept him. I get my ticket punched. I'm going to heaven. Instead of, no, actually, you are to be part of a community. You're to be a part of the church. God didn't save you for you. He saved you for himself, for the church. I think that's what Ezekiel is trying to tell us, if we, in fact, would listen. Um, Jesus loved us and gave himself for us as the church. We are the bride of Christ, and he is in our midst. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the time that we've spent in Ezekiel, for all the difficulties. There are things that we still don't understand. But by your grace, at the end of it all, we do come to understand that Ezekiel is proclaiming to those in exile that there will be restoration and transformation. And it will be seen in the reality that the Lord will once again be among his people. In chapter 10, the glory of the Lord had departed. But as Ezekiel has a vision of this new temple, the glory comes back. It represents your presence among your people. We can blame our culture or our history on the fact that we are just far too individualistic. But if that's the case, then we need to take individual responsibility and acknowledge that we have lost sight of the fact that you have called a people for yourself. And the sign of them being your people is that you are in their midst. The Lord is here. We hear it, we see it time after time in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Somehow it escapes us. We conveniently forget about it. In many ways we are like Samson when his hair has been cut. He didn't realize that your spirit had left him. I pray that in the midst of this pandemic worldwide, in your grace, you would pour out your spirit. That once again, we would say the Lord is here. It would begin with your people in the church. Again, I thank you for the time that we've had in the book of Ezekiel. And may we, by your grace, carry at least some of its truths. May we think on them and meditate on them. I thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. May we have a sense of your presence as we walk through this world in the coming week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.